Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. There's this hesitancy even to talk about things like credit card debt. And then when it comes up, there's this belief that, oh, well, the people in credit card debt, they're living irresponsibly. But the reality is, is 40 to 45% of Americans who have a credit card are carrying a balance on their card. As inflation and interest rates continue to climb, many Americans are finding themselves carrying more debt than ever. As a result, innovative solutions are needed and can make all the difference to debt management. And so when we refinance that credit card debt, we also typically see a FICO score improvement of 20 to 30 basis points. Well, once your FICO score has gone up, could you refi your mortgage and save money? Could you refinance your auto loan and save money? Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. According to recent surveys, 43% of Americans expect to add to their debt in the next six months just in order to make ends meet, and most will use credit cards to bridge that gap. But high interest rates and the effect on credit could put many Americans at risk. That's where Lending Club comes in, helping members pay down high interest debt, save money, and take control of their finances. Lending Club is the only full-spectrum fintech marketplace bank, and my guest today is their CEO, Scott Sanborn. Since its founding in 2006, Lending Club has helped more than 4 million Americans save billions of dollars with no plan to slow down anytime soon. A Lending Club veteran since 2010, Scott served first as the company's chief marketing officer, then chief operating officer before stepping into the CEO position in 2016. Scott was instrumental in steering the company through a prolonged period of triple-digit growth running up to the 2014 IPO, which was, in fact, the largest tech IPO that year. I spoke to Scott about the company's impressive and consistent growth, why their services are accessible to a wider range of customers than their competitors serve, and how their 2021 acquisition of a digital bank has transformed their business. Let's enter the arena with Scott Sanborn. The company started with the idea of using technology, using data, and a real customer focus to transform uh, consumer banking, retail banking. Uh, it was one of the last frontiers that at the point Lending Club made his first loan in 2007. And, you know, back then uh, you saw change coming to retail and to travel and to so many other industries that hadn't yet hit banking. And so that's what we started out to do. And quite successfully, we built the, the largest, we're the largest originator of consumer unsecured loans in the United States. And uh, in 2021, we added into the mix, we acquired a digital bank. 
So now we can help our customers beyond lending. We can help them with their spending and their savings. I think that acquisition, if I'm correct, closed a little over a year ago, uh, February of 2021. How did that transform the business model? I mean, I know most CEOs don't have the level of tenure that you have. How did that really change the model? Yeah, it was really transformative, both financially and strategically. On the financial front, it, it just allowed us to capture so much more of the value that we were generating. We, you know, historically had used issuing banks to make loans and we paid banks to issue the loans under their charters. And so that was about $30 million. We recaptured that. Uh, we also used warehouse lines to pool loans to sell to third parties. Pre the acquisition, uh, 100% of our loans were distributed to investors. And those investors include banks and asset managers and insurance companies, all, all kinds of different uh, destinations. The way we enabled that is we would pool loans using warehouse lines and then sell them to the third parties. And with the acquisition of the bank, we could use our own deposits. So that represented as well roughly $30 million in, in savings. Uh, and then the last piece financially is that we now hold a percentage of our own loans. So we used to sell 100%. Now we hold between 20 and 25%. And for the loans we hold, we earn three times as much as for the loans we sell. So it basically eliminated a bunch of expenses, added a whole new revenue stream in the form of interest income. So really transformational from a financial perspective. And that's enabled the company to really go on and deliver you know, record financial results each of the past uh, several quarters. And then on the strategic side, it allows us to continue to maintain the kind of nimbleness and the growth of a fintech, but bring the profit and resiliency of a bank. And it also, as I mentioned earlier, allows us to do more for our customers, right? We can actually help them with spending as well as lending. Yeah. And I would have to think that it differentiates you completely from your peers and the, and the competitive set in the landscape. Yeah, if you look at the the fintech landscape, I mean, there is a very small handful of companies that have managed to obtain a banking charter, and we're among them. And what makes us unique, even among among that skill set, is you know we're market leader in one of the most profitable categories of lending. We've really figured out how to acquire efficiently at scale, very satisfied customers who love Lending Club and want to do more with us and who also are delivering a, a great return. So it really sets us apart from, if you look at some of the neobanks that are out there, most of whom virtually all with very small exception are, are not even banks. And you know they're really serving, let's call it more underbanked, uh, thin file customers and their business model uh, is really based on interchange revenue. Uh, and you know our core DNA is around lending, which as you know, is where the money's made in banking. Yeah. Well, I know uh, one of your jobs among everything that you do is being a great steward of capital. And I know that the acquisition was great for a lot of reasons, but maybe talk about your return on invested capital for that acquisition and how that benefited uh, shareholders and all of your stakeholders for that matter. Yeah. I mean, the acquisition has really already paid for itself within the course of a year. As I mentioned, you know, our first full quarter post bank acquisition, we were profitable and have gone on to post uh, record quarters in each of the three subsequent quarters since then. It's incredibly accretive for all of the, the reasons I mentioned. So 
really a no-brainer, like I said, for, for shareholders or for use of capital for the business. What's unique here is, you know, there's really two ways to go about getting a charter. One is you apply for what's called a de novo charter. There's very few examples of that actually successfully being completed. And, you know, take a relevant example in our space, there's a company called Varo, which is a fintech bank. And, you know, they publicly stated that it cost them $120 million to obtain the charter in terms of investment. And it took, I think, two and a half or three years. So Lending Club was able to acquire Radius within less than a year. And, you know, we didn't just acquire a charter, we actually acquired real capabilities. They had an award-winning digital bank account that we acquired. They brought a few billion in deposits and they brought, you know, loan book that was generating positive net interest income. So we got a lot more than just the regulatory framework. Yeah. And in addition to deepening the moat kind of around the business, it obviously expanded the total addressable market for y'all and uh, certainly brought lots of customers that you can service in multiple ways. I always, when I'm looking at companies and when investors look at companies, they're looking at the TAM and they're looking at all your opportunity. It seems like that brought with it untold opportunity that isn't like popping off on a financial statement. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it changed a number of things. Most of them we had anticipated and, and communicated in advance, but there have certainly been things post-acquisition that we've been pleased by either to the, the speed at which we've appreciated the benefits or frankly, that we underappreciated them going in. So for example, I mentioned that we operate a, a marketplace, right? Where we're selling the majority of our loans to, to investors who are taking the credit risk and earning the return. Our status as a directly supervised institution really dramatically increased our appeal as a counterparty for these loan investors, right? So half of our loans are sold to banks. Obviously, they deeply appreciate that we are an OCC-regulated bank held to the same standard they are. But even for non-banks, that's appreciated. What's also appreciated is the fact that we're eating our own cooking. The old model, our revenue was directly tied to loan originations. And so we were incented to grow loan originations because that's what grows revenue. Well, in the new model, you know, in Q1, 42% of our income came through servicing fee and interest income, which is you know, dramatically up from, from pre-banks. So people understand that we are inherently aligned or have inherently aligned our incentives with our, our loan buyers in that we want and need the credit to perform and we're going to be good stewards of their capital. So that's, that's just one example of how it's kind of changed the market. Also, when it comes to selling the loans, we no longer need to be a price taker. If the market is not clearing at a price we like, hey, we'll just take the loans ourselves because we can. We have our own balance sheet. So it's really changed the nature of the marketplace aspect of the business. And you know, the flip side is also true for the borrowers. Is, as I mentioned, that 87% of our borrowers have said they want to do more with us. So you can really imagine a world now where we say, congratulations, you're approved for an auto loan. Hey, I'm going going to save you $80 a month to refinance your existing car loan. Why don't you let me take half of that reduced payment and put it into a savings account for you? And by the time you pay off your loan, you're going to have five grand in savings. Uh, so you can see there's there's opportunities for us to really broaden what we do for the customer and, and move beyond just that loan transaction. 
Yeah, like my jaw's open right now. Like I wish I got that phone call like from some of my banks as I was, you know, growing up and and you had some money and you get a mortgage and you know, it's a, it's a one-way street and I think traditional banks have really fallen short there and how do you how's the tactical execution of the technology kind of bring customer service to another level like that? I'll tell you a little story to kind of paint the picture cuz it it isn't that traditional banks don't see this opportunity. It's really a question of how do they get there? And I was at a conference with a bunch of bank CEOs and CTOs, chief technology officers, and somebody stood up and painted a picture of a customer journey. Like, I'm Scott, I bank with, you know, whatever, genericbank.com, and I show up at the bank and they say, hey, Scott, welcome back. Rates have moved since you got your mortgage. You can save $300 a month. You're pre-approved. Click here to accept the offer. And they said, you know, who agrees that's the future of banking? I'm obviously kind of shortening the narrative there. Every hand in the room went up. And they said, okay, who's working on that? Literally, my hand went up and the, the uh, CTO of Lending Club's hand went up. Why is that? It's a combination of multiple things. I think one of the issues, of course, is that you know, of the four to 5,000 banking institutions in the country, there's only a very small handful that have both the financial capacity and the ability to attract talent that can construct that kind of a future. Yeah. They're bringing together legacy systems, often through multiple acquisitions. They've created massive organizations that are very siloed, where the you know, go-to-market strategy is all based on product. The financial incentives are based on product. If you were starting a bank with a blank sheet of paper today, you wouldn't do anything like that, right? You, your whole model would not be, the way I acquire customers is opening a physical building in town and that people will choose that because it's close to their house. When you look at us, we're, we're digitally native, we're not saddled by these legacy systems, and we're able to construct a contextualized, personalized experience powered by data, powered by machine learning, right? That is able to deliver right product, right time, right offer. That is really different. And and it's coming at, at I think, exactly the right time, which is the pandemic has really accelerated these trends. You know, up until five years ago, the primary reason people chose their bank still was the location of the branch. Yeah. Um, but that's really shifted in the pandemic. And now what people are prioritizing is a great mobile experience. One stat that I thought was so impressive is uh, something like 50% of your customers are repeat customers or repeat borrowers. What is kind of driving that repeat business? Because as someone who might look at the stock as, as well as the company, that's just a, a huge, huge advantage and so impressive. It starts obviously with making their first experience with you great. Uh, so we have an extremely high MPS score, you know, about 80% automated. So it's very, very seamless. And we've really constructed an experience that tries to ask as little as possible from the user to get them the value, right? So the fact that, you know, 80% of the decisions are instant, no impact to the credit score, you can get your money the next day. And, and oh, by the way, it's at a cost that is generally leading, meaning a lower lower cost than others because we're fully vertically integrated. We're not carrying the branch overhead and infrastructure. And, yep. you know, we've got whatever, 15 years of data on 70 plus billion dollars worth of loans. Uh, so it starts there, that first experience. But what's unique is what happens after that first experience. So the way, you know, 
surprisingly, again, go back to that, would you do this if you had a blank sheet of paper? The way banking works today is I get you with my branch location. And then if you keep your deposits with me, I'm going to call that sleepy money, right? I'm going to pay you whatever rate I I was paying at the time you opened it. And the fact that I'm paying, you know, five times that or 10 times that to bring in new customers, you're not getting the benefit of that. So you, my most loyal customer who's been with me for 12 years, you're not getting that benefit on your deposits. Same thing is true on the lending side. On average, banks charge repeat customers more for loans than they charge new and certainly more than their credit risk would otherwise indicate because, you know, the term is they're inelastic. They're not shopping around. And so they don't get priced for that in banking. We did the opposite. We said, hey, our repeat customers, they come at effectively no to low acquisition cost and they bring much better credit performance. If you pay me back once, right? Even if you look the exact same as somebody else on the bureau, if that other person's a new customer and you've already paid me back once, you're going to perform better. So they they bring a a lower acquisition cost. They bring better credit performance. I'm going to pass that on to them in the form of a lower rate. And I'm going to make their experience really seamless. So the the process is easier. the, The offer you're getting is even more compelling. And so that brings people back. In terms of like how you get new customers, what it costs you to get those customers, has that changed? Yeah, it's probably worth talking about. One of the other things that makes us unique, certainly as a bank, is that the nature of the marketplace means we can say yes to a full spectrum of customers. You know, you're an 800 FICO, we have a great product for you. It's funded by a community bank or it's on Lending Club's balance sheet. You're a 600 FICO, we also have a great product for you. It's funded by an asset manager. And because we have that broad approval rate, what we're able to do is get much more efficient marketing. Because you know, when you buy an ad on Google or Facebook, you don't know if the person's a 620 FICO or a 780 FICO. Uh, and you have to pay for that click or that ad impression. So we can say yes to both of those people. We build very efficient conversion funnels to pull both of them through. So in general, we have amongst the most efficient marketing in the space. And then you add to that this massive customer base 4 million members that are coming back to us. Half of them come back every five years. And as you mentioned right now on a monthly basis, roughly half of our business is pre-existing customers coming back. Using advanced technology informed by real-time data, Lending Club is able to develop new products targeted to the specific needs of their customers up and down the spectrum. I asked Scott to share what he could tell us about new products and services Lending Club might introduce over the next few years. When we acquired the bank, we said our priorities were going to be first and foremost to bring the lending into the bank. So the first quarter we brought in personal loans. You know, that's the majority of our business that's really generating the earnings. Then we brought in our auto refinance business, and then we brought in our patient finance business. All of those businesses become strategically advantaged by being inside the bank. You know, for some of those reasons I just mentioned, we're just able to do more with them by having them reside inside the bank and be vertically integrated. Then we moved our attention to begin focusing on the other side of the balance sheet, which is raising deposits. So we launched uh, at the end of Q4 high yield savings product. And then in Q1 of this year, we launched first couple terms of CDs. Now the bank had these products, 
but we have to industrialize these things to be, you know, it's great. We combined a digital asset generator with a digital deposit gatherer, but the scale of lending club, we guided to call it 13 to 13 and a half billion in loans this year versus the scale of radius, the bank we acquired for us to, to be able to get the kind of volume through those pipes as we need. We've had to invest in, in building those out. So we've done that and we're still in the process of, you know, enabling those things to scale. So getting the right marketing models and fraud models and conversion pull through and trigger based emails and all, all those pieces. Uh, then the next thing we're going to be turning our attention to is going to be the daily spend account. So the DDA account for our customers. We don't expect that to be a huge source of deposit gathering, but we we do think it will be a source of value for the customer in that, you know, by managing their daily spend, we will get more insight into their financial life and we can use that to actually help them, right? So we can alert them if, hey, look, you're ahead of your spending curve and you got your mortgage payment coming up. If they need help to bridge it, you know, by virtue of being their banking partner, we can pre-underwrite that, provide a reasonable bridge uh, in the form of a, you know, credit to overdraft protection to get through that. So that'll be what we'll be working on next. It's so cool. I'd so much rather get an like a text or an email from you guys telling me I'm spending too much than like my wife telling me that. So that's, <laughs> that's a good like third party buffer that I would sign up for like in a nanosecond. But um, yeah, and that's the, that's the negative warning. And then on the positive side would be, hey, you're running ahead. Let us sweep this into a savings account. You told us you wanted to build up a nest egg. Let's do it. Yeah, big time. I'm not a technologist. You know, you hear AI, artificial intelligence thrown around all the time. For people that don't understand it, how could that be like a, a huge game changer in the future, you know, five, even 10 years down the road? Yeah, I think it's thrown around maybe a little too much these days in terms of there's the opportunity and then there's the reality. You know, there are absolutely very real use cases today driving customer experience and, and creating value. You can think about that in places like the experience model, right? Like predicting why is this customer calling and making sure you can get them the answer they need or predicting in advance a need they're going to have and making sure you've got the right information in front of them at the right time. When it comes to things like underwriting, common sense and the regulatory framework would both indicate that, you know, we're not yet at a place where a black box sitting somewhere can, in a compliant and reasonable fashion, spit out the perfect answer, right? Consumers need to be able to know if I didn't give them a loan offer, why not? What can they do about it? So there are a lot of places where machine learning is driving model development, um, where artificial intelligence is driving service experiences, and it's going to continue to be important contributors to, to you know, get you to the right personalized, contextualized experience for your customer base. Switching gears a little bit, obviously it's a crazy time right now with with rates and inflation and things. And you you all had a uh, a survey I think that had some pretty notable play in the media, finding that nearly two thirds of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck right now, and obviously getting squeezed. How do you guys position yourself to maybe assist the folks that are uh, that are kind of getting a brunt of a lot of the things that are going on right now? Yeah, you know, we put that survey out there to educate the people beyond the bubble that, you know, certainly those of us in San Francisco live in that, you know, 
there's this um, hesitancy even to talk about things like credit card debt. And then when it comes up, there's this belief that, oh, well, the people in credit card debt, they're, you know, they're living irresponsibly. Well, the reality is, is 40 to 45% of Americans who have a credit card are carrying a balance on their card, right? It's not some rare occurrence. It's your neighbor. And the sad fact of life in the U.S. is the higher your income, the higher your debt until you get to a point where you break through that and you can afford to pay cash for your car. But up until that point, a bigger salary just means you buy a more expensive car, so you have a bigger car loan. You buy a more expensive house, so you buy a bigger mortgage. You have a bigger line of credit available on your cards and you use that. And you send your kid to a private school instead of a state school. And so you've got a bigger student loan debt. And so our customer base represents that mass, let's call it middle, where they've got high income, uh, but also high debt. And this practice of living paycheck to paycheck is very, very widespread. It doesn't mean that they can't afford their bills, right? It's just they have to make choices. So we just wanted to get out there that this is not uncommon. People need to know this is an issue, policymakers, lenders, everyone. And you know what we try to do for those customers is one, lower the cost of their debt. There are structural inefficiencies in the market, right? In credit cards, people who carry a balance are paying for all those great rewards. So the revolvers are paying for the transactors. If you just get airline miles and pay it off every month, you know, your neighbor's paying for that. Um, And same thing in the auto business. If you bought your car, which most people do at a used car dealer, you are paying a markup that's invisible to you of two to 300 basis points. You're driving off the lot paying more than your credit risk would indicate because that's a source of profit for the dealer. Um, so there's these structural inefficiencies we're going after and then just using you know modern data analysis techniques and all the rest to really lower that cost of credit. And then uh, once we got that cost of credit lowered, we wanna be able to use the banking experience to help them stay on top of it and manage that spend in between. I think it's some of the stuff we were talking about earlier where you can alert those customers who are paycheck to paycheck about, you know, your spending is too high or, hey, here we can save you money on the fly depending on what's going on. And, you know, the better you get at it, the more information, the more you can help people. And it's just like this flywheel that I think becomes incredibly valuable, not only to your shareholders, but to your customers, most importantly. Yeah, there's a positive flywheel. When we refinance credit card debt, that's the primary use case of our product. That's our primary go-to-market strategy is, hey, if you didn't pay off your credit card last month, you have a loan, it's a crappy loan. It's a floating rate and it's a high rate to cover the rewards of the program you're in. So average APR for the cards is 20%, right? Which again, people go, what? Who pays 20% of their credit card rates? Well, do you have a Macy's card? Do you have a Gap card? And so when we refinance that credit card debt, in addition to lowering their payment, we also typically see a FICO score improvement of 20 to 30 basis points. So that's where you see the beginning of that positive flywheel. Well, once your FICO score has gone up, could you refi your mortgage and save money? Could you refinance your auto loan and save money? If you are living paycheck to paycheck, our average auto refinance saves, I think it's $84 a month to an average consumer. I mean, that's like, wow, right? That's (laughs) on an annual basis, you're saving people $1,000. That's real money. You've been at the helm of the company uh, during a period where you've delivered some really awesome growth and, and financial performance. And I ask this to every CEO of a public company, 
When you sit down with shareholders, what do they miss about the company generally? Yeah, I would say we are starting right now to really feel that the story is gaining some some traction, which is great. But historically, what we've had to wrestle with is, you know, you have people who understand tech and you have people who understand fin and banking. And those two people don't speak the same language. They don't look at the same metrics that were value the same metrics. And so historically, we used to draw on the wall, like, here's what the bank and, and financial investors need to hear. And here's what the tech investors need to hear. And where's the Venn diagram overlap? And like, what's the area of commonality? As more fintech companies have gone public, um, and there's, you know, a comparative set out there. And I think as as analysts and investors have, you know, sort of seen a few more different models out there, we are starting to see that that come together. And like our narrative is, look, we got the best of both worlds. If you want to judge us through a banking lens, great. Look at our, you know, look at our ROEs. Uh, we're going to look really good. Uh, look at our NIM. It looks really good. And same thing, if you want to look at us as a, as a fintech and compare our growth rates to the others, we're going to look really good. And then we're going to add one key differentiator, which is, yeah, we're growing at the same pace as, as most of our peers, but we're also profitable at the same time, right? So it's really differentiated. Yeah, Wall Street loves everything in a box that they can understand. But you know what? I think the real innovators, you know, have businesses that are disruptors or innovators, whatever you want to call it, have businesses that just don't always fit into a box, you know? The last question I had for you, which is a little bit off topic, have you seen the 100-foot wave uh, documentary with Garrett? McNamara? I sure have. I know you're a surfer. And my question was just to ask you, you know, how surfing makes you better at your job. But I wanted to see if you saw it because I was just blown away by that. Yeah, I thought that movie was fascinating. And if you see that together with The Alpinist or Free Solo, yeah. you start to get a picture of the kind of people that are pursuing extreme sports at the highest level. And to be clear, um, you're not going to find me on a hundred foot wave. But the thing that's unique about surfing and why I think once you get the bug, you don't ever let it go is that it is this amazing combination of adrenaline and zen. You got to look at the water when you go there, look for where's the rip, where's the right place to get out. You're setting your strategy. You got to get through a wall of white water. How are you getting out there? But then the wave comes in and every wave's different. The wave is changing underneath you and you need to be in the moment responding to what's happening. times like these, Lending Club solutions can be an absolute lifeline for consumers. In easier economic times, their innovative methods help members build a safety net and achieve their financial goals. Either way, Lending Club has built a low-cost, high-opportunity marketplace that helps their members improve their financial position regardless of their starting point. That's a win-win model that's well-positioned to keep stakeholders happy now and in the future. Welcome to the arena. We're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. 
Thanks again to Scott for a really great conversation. I don't know about you, but it's super exciting to hear about what's possible regarding the future of lending and digital banking. Feels like we're just in the first inning. This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.